pastors here, the other pastor here. Um, as Ryan said, we're going to be continuing this morning our series in the book of Proverbs. So if you like to have the Bible in your hand and flip around in Proverbs, there are Bibles in these, chair, these black chair pockets here. And on the ends of the side aisles, if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep that one. Um, but we're going to be moving around a lot. And so the Proverbs we'll be looking at are also printed on the back of your bulletin for easy reference. So if you want to grab that, that's good too. And they'll be on the screen behind me. Um, I, I have a friend who is not much for small talk. I don't know if you have any friends like this, but he just likes to get right into it with people. He doesn't chit-chat. He just goes right for the jugular, so to speak, in a friendly conversational way. And um, one of the questions he likes to ask people is, um, and he, asks this, he, doesn't ask, he doesn't ask strangers this question, okay? This isn't a street question. This is a friend question. But he asks, what have you changed in your life recently, specifically because of something you read in the Bible, as a way of sort of diagnosing how are you doing with the Lord? How are things going in your life? Have you changed anything specifically recently because of something you've read in the Bible? So just think about that for a moment. I think we probably all have times where it'd be kind of hard to know how to answer that question, right? We all have times when it seems like nothing much is happening there. Um, And I, I can relate to that. But it's a good question because this book is God's word. It's God speaking to us. It's God addressing us. And sometimes, sometimes he speaks to us encouragement. And sometimes he speaks to us comfort. Sometimes he reminds us of truths that we've forgotten. But sometimes, in his word, God has to get a little bit in our faces about something. There's something we need to see about our life that needs to change. This week, I had to make a specific change in my life because of what I was studying for this sermon. There's, um, there's a need in the life of someone my wife and I care about a lot, and Kim has been regularly, not nagging, but reminding me we need to decide what we're going to do about this need. And I've been putting it off because, frankly, I, I didn't want to give anything at all. I, there are other things I wanted to give to that felt more pressing. Or, you know, I told myself in the quiet of my heart, we could save it. Save it. Then we'll be safe. Um, and so I had to make a specific change this week regarding that situation because of what we're reading in God's Word. So um, God's Word had something to say to me this week, and it has something to say to us this morning. So as Ryan said, we've been going through a series on the book of Proverbs. The Old Testament book written primarily by King Solomon, um, about wisdom, the book of wisdom. And the last three weeks, this is the third week, we've been looking at what Proverbs says about money, what it says about our wealth. Uh, We've looked at how God wants us to go about getting wealth, how he wants us to use it, and this morning, how he wants us to give it. Um, So that's what we're looking at. But before we do, would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Our Father, we thank you, we thank you that we can be here together again, sitting under your word. Thank you for giving us this book, which is you speaking to us, speaking to us about who you are, speaking to us about our lives, uh, speaking to us above all about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. You are the God who has given us so much. You give us life, you give us breath, you give us um, everything we have. God, everything is from you and for you. You are the great giver, and we want to we become givers like you. So please, God, come in this time. Come help me to preach your word. 
faithfully and with power. And please come with my friends as we listen. God, help us to hear from you and then live as you want us to live in light of your word. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are three connections God wants us to make this morning from the book of Proverbs that will help us to be generous givers. The first connection is between our wealth and our worship, then between the poor and the Lord, and then between the future and the present. So uh, the first connection we need to see is between our wealth and our worship. So um, the first point, if you're a note taker, is that wealth is given to us for worship. And you can see that if you look at Proverbs uh, chapter 10, verse 22. It says, The blessing of the Lord makes rich. And he adds, No sorrow with it. The blessing of the Lord makes rich. The blessing of the Lord makes rich. Everything you have is from God. It's a gift. Now you can say, Hey, I've worked really hard for what I have. I've been diligent at work. I have watched my spending. I've invested wisely. What I have is because of my diligence. And you're not wrong. We've seen in Proverbs that, that money, that wealth, often comes to those who are diligent, who are faithful, who are careful with their money. That's true, but it's not the most important thing the Bible teaches us about our money. More importantly, our money is a gift from God. Because who gave you the mind that you use in your work? Who gave you favor in the eyes of the people who hired you for the jobs that that got you ahead? Who provided the scholarship that enabled you to pay for school? Who sustained your every heartbeat, your every breath from the time you were born until now? Everything is from the Lord. It could all disappear tomorrow. It's ours now because God wills it. So wealth is given, and it's crucial to remember that because If what I have is due exclusively to my effort, if I have done this myself, then my money is for me. It's mine. It's mine to do whatever I want with it. But if our money is given, if wealth is a gift, then we have to ask for what purpose it was given. And Proverbs helps us. So chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 say, Honor the Lord with your wealth. And with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So wealth is a means of honoring God. It's a means of showing how great he is. Wealth is a way we can worship. So what does it mean to honor God with our wealth? Well, it's lots of different things. It's uh, giving thanks to him for it is a way to honor him. Spending it wisely. Refusing to trust in it for security instead of trusting in God. But what's particularly in view in these verses is giving, honoring God by giving. And the key word that tells us that is the word first fruits. We're to honor God with our first fruits. The idea of first fruits comes from the law that God gave his people. So God says in Deuteronomy 26, 1 and 2, this should be on the screen behind me, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and take possession of it, And live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, first fruit, which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. So God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them into this new, this this promised land, this new home for them, this good land where they could settle down and grow crops. And he said, When you have settled down, when you've planted the ground, when it's begun to give back, 
this fruit that you need to live on, you should bring the first of it, some of the first, to God. And you should, there's something, he, he gives them a script. He says, and this is what you should say. And it, he's basically saying, the confession they make is, I was a slave in Egypt, and God rescued me out of it, and God gave me this land, and that's why I'm bringing this gift. It's God, God has given them this way of remembering year after year that everything they have is grace. They were slaves. God rescued them. They, did, they weren't strong enough to take the land. God gave it to them. Everything they have is grace. And so every year they come and they give this gift and they worship. And the same is true of us. We who have trusted in Jesus know we don't deserve any of what we have, right? We haven't, we haven't been so consistent in loving God more than anything that God owes us something. We haven't obeyed him so perfectly that now we deserve what we've received. We were slaves too. We were slaves to sin. God rescued us out of that through the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's given this amazing new life with him. And so we have even more reason to worship God by everything that he's given us because we know how much he has done. We know that everything we have is grace. So what does it mean for us to give back our first fruits? Because most of you, I will hazard a guess, are not farmers. Most of you could not, if pressed, bring to God your best lamb, your best, you know, grapes. That You don't have anything like that to give. So what does it mean for us to give to God our first fruits? We do it by making giving a priority. We do it first. Giving isn't something we sort of wait till the end of the month and we kind of look, well, what's left over? Can we part with any of that? It's not something you do out of like what's in your pockets in the moment. Giving is something that we plan. It's something we budget for. It's something we make sure is there because it's a way of us remembering year after year, week after week, that everything we have is grace. God intends giving to be a constant test to help us see where our hearts are. If, if giving is a joy to you, if it's a joy to share what God has given to you, then that's a good sign that in your hearts you're seeing things rightly. You're seeing that this is all from God in the first place. This is all a gift to me. It's not for me. And I get to honor God by giving some of it back. But when giving becomes a chore or when giving when it dries up altogether, we can see that something in our hearts has gone awry, that we've begun to see our money as ours, as for us. We're so quick to assume possession of what we have. So if I had a dollar for every time one of my sons said of his brother's toy, mine, I would have a lot more money to give. Because we, that's how we all are, isn't it? Because we're holding it in our hands, we think it's ours. We think it belongs to us. It's for our purposes. But God has called us to give some back so we remember whose it truly is. So what does it mean to give back to God? God doesn't have, he doesn't have a Butterfield account you can transfer into, right? There's no place you can bring your lamb. He doesn't have any material needs. So what does it mean to give back to him? Well, the law of the first fruits tells us because, remember, we, they were to bring this food to the place where God dwells, and the food went to two places. It went to the Levites, who were the the ministers. They were the professional religious workers. They didn't farm. They were full-time focused on the tabernacle. So it went to the Levites, and then it says in the text that it went to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. In other words, the poor. 
Because the sojourner was a foreigner. He was someone who was living in Israel, but he wasn't in Israel. He couldn't permanently own land. He was kind of a subclass. And so um, God says, you got to make sure that he eats and for the fatherless and the widow, for orphans and widows, because they've lost their source of income. The dad died. And so God says, make sure that your first fruits go to them. Make sure that they have enough to eat too. So it went two places. It went to the work of ministry and it went to the poor. And that first one is important, right? Obviously, I think it's important to pay ministers because I'm a minister. But that's not primarily how the book of Proverbs talks about giving. Primarily, when Proverbs talks about giving, it's talking about that second category, which is where we're going to focus this morning. So we've seen the connection between our wealth and our worship. Now we need to see the connection between the Lord and the poor. So secondly, we honor God, we honor God when we're generous to the poor. Look at chapter 14, verse 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him, honors God. Generosity to the poor honors God. Why? Well, we can see it in the first part of the verse because God is their maker. They are made in the image of God. Every human being, regardless of their social or financial uh, condition, is equally valuable because they share the image of God. Nobody is more or less valuable for being rich or poor, right? We, we speak about someone's um, kind of their, their personal wealth as being their net worth, right? But in a very profound sense, we all have the same net worth. We are all valuable because we're made in God's image. Because God is our maker, we belong to him, and he says that we have value because of that. So when we, when we value people more than money, when we don't hold on to our money, when we share it with people to bless them, we show that we love what God loves. God loves people. Wealth is a means of worship. It's a means of blessing. When we show that we love people more than money, we honor God because we love what he loves. So we should know what we're talking about when we talk about the poor because that can become a very ambiguous category and it almost always means like somebody else. Um, somebody different than us, somebody outside. But when the Bible talks about the poor, it means the people who are in material need. They don't have adequate food, they don't have adequate clothing, they don't have adequate shelter. But it's more than that. It's also, it also connotes a kind of helplessness. Um, a helplessness that makes it, so they, it's not that just they lack things, but they, they can't get those things. Maybe it's because They're bereaved, like the orphan and the widow. They can't get more money because the breadwinner is gone. Or maybe they're the victims of injustice. Maybe they've been robbed or cheated, or they're working for someone who pays them so little money that they can never get ahead. They're just going further and further in debt. Poverty in the Bible and today isn't just about material needs, but it's about the the kind of helplessness that creeps in that makes the need even worse. Someone has observed that the condition of poverty is like being stuck in a spider web, and that everything you try to get loose just gets you more stuck. So you can't get enough work, you can't get adequate work because you didn't finish school, but you can't go back to school because then you have to quit the job that you have. Or you need a car to get to work, but the only loan you can get for your car has such high interest rates you could never pay it back. Or you're stuck in an abusive situation But you can't leave because homelessness seems even worse to you than where you are. And and just like a fly caught in a spider web, eventually you just stop struggling. You just stop trying to get free and you feel forgotten and you feel worthless. 
So I don't, and I don't mean to imply that people who, who are in that condition, that, that because they are, that they're necessarily innocent, they didn't do anything to contribute to it. There are situations, of course, where that's true. But what I am saying is that God's word tells us that even if they did contribute to it, he is their maker. He is their maker, and we are to love them, and generosity to them honors him. So chapter 29, verse 7, fills this out a little bit more. It says, A righteous man knows the rights of the poor, but the wicked does not understand such knowledge. So, and, and when Solomon says that the righteous knows the rights of the poor, he doesn't just mean they read it in a book. He means they involve themselves in the rights of the poor. They concern themselves with the rights of the poor. The poor are made in God's image, and because of that, there's a way they should be treated, a way they should be cared for, and the righteous man gets involved to make sure that that happens. Solomon is, is very likely thinking here of another passage in the law. So Deuteronomy 15, beginning in verse 4, says to God's people, There will be no poor among you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, Oh, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all you undertake. God commands to his people that there should be no poor among them. And he doesn't mean that no one will ever get hurt in their work and be unable to work for a time. He doesn't mean that no one will ever come on hard times or lose their crop. He means that no one will ever become permanently poor, chronically poor, because the people around them will help. They will pitch in. He says that, uh, that, that when someone is in need, they should open their hand. I love that picture. It's, you're not holding anything back. You open your hand and give generously. He says that even in their hearts, they should give willingly, not begrudgingly, but even in their hearts, be generous. And he warns them not to say the seventh year is coming. And here's what that means. So in Israel, every seven years, all debts were forgiven. And what, what God envisions in this passage is a loan. Your, your brother is in need, you lend him some money. And he, what he didn't want was for people to say, oh man, it's year six. If I lend him this money, I am never going to see that money again. I'm just going to sit on it and pretend like I didn't see what's happening. He said, don't say in your hearts the seventh year is near. Give freely, even if you know you won't get it back. He says that, the, that those with means should be so open-handed and wholehearted that there'd be no poor among them. And this, this isn't just an Old Testament idea. Luke tells us in the book of Acts chapter 4 that of the church in Jerusalem, there was not a needy person among them. Think about how much the Christians must have stood out. Not one needy person among them. Think of how Jesus treated the poor. When, when Jesus arrived on the scene, he stood up at the synagogue and he said, quoting Isaiah, that he had come to preach good news to the poor. And as you watch Jesus go through his ministry, you see him going to the people that had become outsiders, that had become helpless, the people who, uh, who had become blind, the people who were lame, the people with leprosy, the people who even through their own immoral lifestyle had made themselves outcasts. And he went to these people and he touched them 
and he healed them, and he raised them up. He, he showed that they had dignity. He showed that they had value to him. And when Jesus was teaching his disciples about the final judgment, he told them that one of the distinguishing marks of those who enter eternal life is that they cared for the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the stranger, the sick, and the imprisoned, the poor. Because he said that as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. As we treat those in need, as we treat the poor, so we treat Jesus. The poor are made in God's image, and when we're generous to them, we honor him. So we've seen the connection between our wealth and our worship, the poor and the Lord, and now finally we need to see the connection between the future and the present. God will deal with us in the future as we deal with the poor in the present. Now before you get too unnerved by that, consider that it that in the book of Proverbs, that works both positively and negatively. Positively, God promises to abundantly provide for those who are generous to those in need. Look at chapter 11, verses 24 to 25. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. In chapter 19, verse 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Jonathan Edwards, who is an 18th century American pastor, commented um, on this idea, on this teaching. He says, as there is scarce any duty prescribed in the word of God, which is so much insisted on as this, so almost nothing is as insisted on as generosity to the poor, so there is scarce any to which there are so many promises of reward made. He's saying there's almost nothing else in the Bible that God so consistently says, if you do this, I will take care of you. I will bless you. I will provide. I will make my grace abound to you. If you, if you look back, or if you remember chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. That's not a picture of people who've been, they've been so generous that they've just work themselves into the poorhouse. They've been so generous that they have nothing left for themselves. It says that their barns are full, that their, their vats are bursting with wine. Now, this is a place where it's easy to go wrong because you could imagine, wait, is this a promise that it's an infallible way to get rich, to give to the poor? Like, you could imagine, like, if I kind of drop some change in a cup, to help a guy buy a sandwich. Like, will the heavens open up quarters raining down on me like I've hit the jackpot at the casino? And the answer is no. Of course not. God gives, he calls us to give as a means of worshiping him, as a means of remembering everything's for him, as a means of, of keeping him first in our hearts. It would be incredibly counterproductive for God to then, like, have this loophole where people who are selfish could, could get more and more money to spend on themselves. God is not saying that if you're generous, God will make you rich so you can indulge yourself. He's saying that that if you sacrifice now for the needs of those around you, God himself will care for you in the future. He will provide your needs and he will give you more to give. He will give you more to share. Fear fear can hold us back from generosity, right? So someone needs $1,000 to to pay off their past due medical bills. And you think, well, what if I need this $1,000? What if, what if my car breaks down? What if my rent goes up? What if I lose my job? What if I need this? And so we hold on to things because of the what ifs, because of what's going to happen in the future. 
There's always a future expense we can imagine that will tempt us not to give. So God promises that he'll abundantly provide for us. We don't need to be afraid. We can give freely. In fact, God says, this is amazing, in chapter 19, verse 17, that a gift to the poor is a loan to him. He offers himself as co-signer on every gift you give, and he says that they may not be able to repay you, but I will make sure that you get repaid. I will repay you myself. And this is fascinating to me, because I don't know know about you, but like when I'm working on my budget and I look at what we give, I count that as basically lost money, right? It's, It's not going into savings. It's not here anymore. Say goodbye to that money forever. But what God is saying is that that money isn't lost. It's lent. It's invested in him to be repaid at a time when we need it. Our spending, we lose, but what we give stays in the portfolio. And this is important because we, we tend to find security in very flimsy things. And I do this too. There's, a, there's one kind of number that if I see it in my bank account will make me feel very content. And there's another kind of number if I see it in my bank account will make me feel very concerned and very worried. I, th- I can think of my savings as being kind of this rock-solid guarantee of my family's future. And, and, and it's good to have savings, Right? We've seen that in the book of Proverbs. It's good to have savings, but savings are not what keep us safe. God is what keeps us safe. Well, why do we feel so confident when our money is saved or invested, and we feel so vulnerable when our money is given away, when our money is entrusted to God? Savings can disappear. The housing market crashes. We can lose our job. We can get sick and have a ton of bills. Savings can disappear overnight, but God never does. God never changes. Our money is more secure with him than it is in Butterfield or Cayman National. But this takes faith, right? It's easier to trust what we can see, the number in the online portal. It's harder to trust an invisible God to take care of it. But when we give to the poor, we honor God by trusting him and not our savings to take care of our future. So God will deal with us in the future as we deal with the poor in the present. We've seen the positive side of that, but we also need to see Solomon's warning. So look at chapter 21, verse 13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself cry out and not be answered. We will be treated as we treat those in need. And look at chapter 28, verse 27. Whoever gives to the poor will not want, there's God's provision, but he who hides his eyes will get many a curse. So these verses speak of those who close their eyes and close their ears. It, it's speaking of those who they don't want to know. They don't want to see it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to know that there's poverty in their midst. They, they cross the road to avoid it. They take the long way around it, but they know that it's there and they do nothing. I don't want to be them. Do you? I don't want to be them. I don't want to spend on myself what was meant for others because the Bible teaches that we're stewards, that everything we have is entrusted to us from God and that he has purposes for it. So I want you to imagine yourself as a teenager again, okay? Some of you are teenagers. This will be very easy. Imagine yourself as a teenager. Imagine that tonight you'll be going to babysit and imagine the dad handing you a 50 and saying, here, make sure the kids get dinner and then the rest is yours. Now, you can feed two kids pretty cheaply, even here, right? 
Pizza at Domino's is nine bucks. You can get Burger Shack for less than 20. There's still plenty of money left over for you. But how do you think that father will react if he comes home and finds the kids hungry and you having pocketed the whole 50? God has given us what we have for a purpose, to honor him. Now, one of the ways we honor him is by enjoying what he's provided, enjoying what our money can buy. So it's good to enjoy a well-cooked steak. It's good to sip cappuccinos with a friend. It's good to take your kids on holiday and make memories for your family. One of the ways we honor God is by enjoying what he's given, but it's not the only way. He's called us to honor him by giving. Giving some of what he's given us to those whose needs are not met and whose situation without help will not improve. So this, this is not a strength for me. <laughs> I just, if you're feeling that way, then if you consider me good company, you are in good company, right? This is not easy for me. It's easier for me to just kind of like click the buttons that make my automatic transfer from Butterfield to Sunrise Community Church once a month. That's a lot easier to me than walking around with eyes to see and ears to hear, seeing the needs in my neighborhood, in my family, in my community group, and then sacrificially meeting them. That's a lot harder for me to do. I've had to repent this week. And maybe you do too. And that's okay. It's important for us to see that, that this is important to God. He, he says he'll deal with us in the future as we deal with the poor in the present. But that's the, there's something else we need to remember as well. Because we've all fallen short of this, right? We all have, to some degree kept for ourselves what we should have given. We've all closed our ears. We've all closed our eyes. We've all kept money for ourselves. So some of us here are materially poor. Some of us here are not, but we are all spiritually poor. None of us have anything we can offer to God. And the good news is that Jesus Christ has done something for the spiritually poor. He has done something for those that should have handled their money better and didn't. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We have not treated the poor as we ought, but Jesus always did. We deserve to cry out and not be heard. But on the cross, Jesus cried out and wasn't heard. We deserve, it says, many a curse. But on the cross, Jesus became the curse for us. That's what we celebrate this Holy Week, Palm Sunday and Easter. We celebrate that we were poor, we were helpless. The cry on Palm Sunday, Hosanna, means it's both praise and it's, it's save us. We need help. We need help. We're remembering that we were poor and Jesus, though rich, became poor for us. He took the punishment we deserve so we could have his perfect record and a new life of forgiveness So don't receive this teaching this morning as a burden. This isn't something that God's trying to weigh down you with. God has goodness for us in obedience. He has abundant provision for us. Small acts of faithfulness will lead to greater ability to do more and more in the future. But we need to begin. So where should we start? I don't want to conclude this morning without giving you some sort of practical helps to get going. And I think maybe the best way might be to sort of anticipate what questions might be in your minds. The first is, to whom should I give? Who is my poor brother? Who is, who is the neighbor I'm called to love as myself? Jesus was asked that question once, and the way he responded was to tell a story, a very famous story called the story of the Good Samaritan, the upshot of which is basically that you're called to give 
to anyone who needs your compassion and whose need you can meet, even if they're nothing like you, even if they're very different from you. We're not supposed to give just, just to people we love or people who are like us or other Christians. We're called to give to those who need compassion, those whose need we can meet. So one way to begin thinking about this might be to sort of imagine your life as having concentric circles. And you can start in the innermost circle and just ask the question, who is in need? Who is in need in my family? Which is, God says, is your first responsibility. Who's in need in my community group? Who's in need in my church? Who's in need in my neighborhood? Who's in need in Cayman? Who's in need in the world? Who is underemployed or unemployed? Who's ill or disabled? Who's raising kids alone? Who's being abused? Who's being neglected? Who just got out of prison and needs some help getting started? Start with your family, work your way out, and when you find a need that you can meet, do something. Another question is, how much should I give? How much should I be giving away to the poor like this? And I would say, um, I know that I made this question, so it's a little unfair for me to criticize it, but that's, that's even the wrong question. The right question is, how much can I give? If we ask how much should I give, that still sounds kind of defensive, right? Like I'm trying to save as much as I can. What's the minimum that I can get done? How much can I give? And there are two biblical principles that help us here. One, one is the principle um, that we should share one another's burdens. Paul talks about this in Galatians 6. We should bear one another's burdens. So if someone has a need, you should give until you somehow share that burden with them. If you're able to give and give and give and it doesn't affect your lifestyle, if it involves no sacrifice on your part, you're not, you're not sharing their burden. You have more to give. So one principle is you should give until you share the burden. But there's another principle, is, which is that you should provide for your family. Paul says that anyone who doesn't provide for his family has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So if you give away what was meant for your kids' clothes and food, you've given away too much. You haven't provided for your family. And this is why... Um, this is why that it's, it's good to have health insurance, right? If you get sick, you don't want these huge bills that bankrupt your family. This is why it's good to save so that nobody else has to buy your next car. It's good to have a retirement account so when you can't work anymore, you don't have to depend on your kids. You shouldn't give until you become a burden. So the principle is give until you share the burden, but not until you become a burden. That's the range we're trying to work in. So an easy place to start is just sit down with your budget and figure out how much you need to live on, how much you need to meet your basic needs and to make sure you don't become a burden on anyone else. Then look at your disposable income and pick a percentage. Say this much every month is going to be a generosity budget. I'm putting it in there from the beginning and then make sure every month that you don't have any left. Make sure that you give it away, that you share it with the people whose needs you come across. And I know, I know there are lots more questions. How can I give to the poor without making them dependent on a handout? When should I give money, and when is it better to give some other kind of assistance? Should I distinguish between people whose poverty is due to outside forces or people who have contributed to their own? And those are good questions, and I wish we could get to all of it. And you're welcome to find me after the service so I could at least point you to some resources because, frankly, I don't even know how to begin answering a lot of those questions. But I don't want us to lose the big picture. God has given us wealth as a means of worship. And when we're generous to the poor, we honor him and we gain abundant provision for ourselves. Generosity is both for God's glory and it's for our gain. So let's pray that God will help us.
Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it, that it isn't always warm and fuzzy for us, that sometimes it makes us see things we wish we hadn't seen. Sometimes it, it exposes us and reveals us and shows us things that may not be a strength for us, but we thank you that when you do that, it's because you love us. You want to lead us into greater life and dependence on you, greater life loving you more than we love anything else. God, please help us. Please help us to not, to not find our security in what you've given, but to find our security in you. Please help us to not think of the poor as being people far off, people totally unlike us, but to see that they are made in God's image just as we are. And help us to recognize how much you love them and that when we honor them, when we're generous with them, that we honor you. Father, please help us. Help us to, as we reflect on what Jesus has done, to be imitators of him and to make ourselves poor in love for those in need. And God, let this all be to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.